Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and joining me today is our cardiac lead, Brad Ward. Hello. And today we're going to talk about some recent literature updates centering around out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and obviously talk about the study results, but also try to bridge that into habits and protocol specifics that we use here at MCHD when managing out-of-hospital cardiac arrest as well not dwell on the data, but really talk about the overarching themes that both of these studies present. So the first study we're going to roll into is a study out of resuscitation 2021 by Murphy et al. And the title of the study is Fewer Tracheal Intubation Attempts Leads to Improved Neurointact Survival and Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest. And realistically, from the title, that's pretty much it. Pretty, pretty much what we would think as well. Yeah. The more times you attempt to intubate a patient during out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, what are you not doing? You're not doing quality compressions. You're not focusing on the things you should focus on. So from the who, what, when, and where, how standpoint, we're looking at 1,205 non-trauma out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients who got a laryngoscopy attempt. It's a retrospective observational cohort study. The out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and intubation was the exposure. These patients were gathered from January of 2015 to June of 2019, where this is a Seattle fire study. And lastly, the primary outcome is neurointact survival at a CPC-1 or CPC-2 level. We would agree that CPC-1 or 2 is neurointact, correct, Bradley? Yeah, absolutely. Those are people who know what they're doing and have a life. Walking, talking, eating, drinking. Yep doing their normal things. They excluded patients with no intubation attempts, patients who received BLS care only, patients who were intubated after ROSC, DNR patients, and also patients that were cared for by other services. So these were all within Seattle Fire. They all received an intubation attempt after their out-of-hospital cardiac arrest prior to getting ROSC. And they looked at, in that cohort of patients, what were their neurointact outcomes. And they found that these patients were primarily in their 60s, not quite, but almost two-thirds were male, about a third were witnessed arrests, and 61% got bystander CPR, and about one-fifth were shockable, all within probably fairly reasonable range to what we take care of here at MCHD. Would you agree? Yeah, that's pretty much your cardiac arrest patient you see. And you can move the needle a little bit, but pretty standard group of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients. They had a 44% ROSC rate, survival to hospital admission, 38%, survival to discharge, 11%, which also, for the most part, tracks. Yeah, pretty much tracks across all high-performing services. And that 11% survival to discharge tells us that it's a pretty pretty bad disease. Cardiac arrest is a, has a dismal survival rate no matter what you do. In the study, the first pass success in, the, in this group was 65% with uh, 86% of the patients being successfully intubated by the second attempt. And again, primary outcome, CPC1, CPC2. And when you stratify the groups into one intubation attempt, two, three, and four or greater, you see exactly what one might expect. And that would be with each successive attempt, your survival to neurointact outcome decreases. Pretty significantly. So 11% survival to CPC one or two with one attempt, 4% with two, 3% with three, 
and then down to 2% with four or more, which is the hypothesis I think most folks will have. Kudos to Seattle Fire and their group for extracting this data. This is obviously messy, tough data to deal with, and no one had really looked at it from this standpoint before. But our hypothesis that increased intubation attempts is going to lead to neurointact outcome decrease is absolutely confirmed. And these differences held for shockable versus non-shockable. They used some multivariable modeling to adjust for age, sex, witnessed rate, bystander rate, time to EMS intervention, initial rhythm, and these decreases with successive attempts held when all of these other variables were accounted for and corrected for. So what are some questions that might come from this, Brad? What If, you, if you're if you an MCHD listener, what's the first thing you're going to ask me? Yeah, what about SGAs? So in, in Seattle Fire Service, they are intubators of cardiac arrest patients. They use direct laryngoscopy. So from MCHD listener's standpoint, this really is kind of apples and oranges because we're first and foremost IGEL users with video laryngoscopy for our intubation attempts if we choose to go that route. We could rehash part airways two, the two recent cardiac arrest airway management big studies uh, over the past couple years, but this really isn't a rehash of that. Whether or not you should use supraglottic airways or intubate these folks is another topic for another day, but it does suggest that the more time that you spend on the airway and the more time that you're, for lack of a better term, mucking in the airway, you're not doing the other things that we know increase survival. Yeah. Do you think it's just that it's a major distractor? It takes up your time. It takes up your resources. It takes up your, your high-performing providers. That has to be number one with, yeah. a, with a 1B being you're not oxygenating and ventilating, which right. probably is important, probably not as important as compressions and depth and lack of pauses, but you have to think that the longer that you're not oxygenating and ventilating probably causes direct harm as well. But I would say the bigger harm is the indirect distraction from doing the other things that we know are helpful. You know, it's retrospective, so that always leads to, you know, difficult difficulty with fully delineating causation because it's retrospective and, and we don't know for sure that this was the exact reason that these patients had worsened outcome. Sure, but cardiac arrest is notoriously difficult to study in the first place. And they did some things in this study that admittedly was was pretty amazing. They incorporated audio and monitor data. So they had audio data to correlate with the monitor data to know exactly what was going on, or at least better than most know exactly what's going on within their arrest. 1,200 patients, that's a huge database. Huge. So relative to most out-of-hospital cardiac arrest research, they got really granular. So kudos to them for that. And they looked at the number of attempts in relation to patient-oriented outcomes, which is CPC1 or CP2, not in relation to ROSC or other numbers that may not be quite as valuable. When we're really looking at cardiac arrest, what we want to know is that the patients walk and talk and eat and drink because that's what is valuable. when to we their family members, yeah. And to them. So what do we do now in that this doesn't translate exactly to MCHD? Like, like we said, we're using the IGEL and we're pushing the IGEL first. This still points to the fact that airway delays equal worsened outcomes to me. And this is evident in other studies and other comparisons that, it, that it exist out there. In this study, the mean time to definitive airway was about five minutes. I would say my estimate in putting these notes together was that we're in that two to three minute range. You're more of an 
expert in that. Yeah, I'd agree. Just really simply because the iGel is such an easy tool. Just to quicker. Use. Yeah, it's quicker, and and our and our BLS partners can often place that. So we're getting to that airway checkbox quicker. So like just like you said, we can concentrate more fully on minimizing pauses, rate, depth, the things that we know matter. Shock if it's shockable. Yep. So. That was number one. Let's talk about a second resuscitation paper. This was uh, 2021 as well, Crickmeyer et al. And they looked at the association between entitled CO2 and return of spontaneous circulation in specifically PEA patients. And we know that how we assess PEA patients and the approach to PEA patients has changed a little bit over the past five to 10 years. The classic teaching, and we, we still banter this around and we see it on test, the five H's and the five T's for PEA, whether or not that truly holds, there's quite a bit of debate there. There was a recent push to look at PEA rate. If the PEA rate is slower versus faster, that could potentially pretend a good versus bad outcome. This is the pseudo-PEA versus PEA. Yeah, there's, and, and pseudo-PEA we know is real. We know we're notoriously bad at at palpating pulses, we being all emergency providers, sure. we've incorporated ultrasound use here at MCHD to help with these patients. But back in 2016, Burgum et al. looked at PEA patients prospectively, and they found no change in survival based on width of QRS or rate of the patient presenting in PEA. Now, this was 51 patients, so a small number. But this is the best evidence we have that maybe the initial rate isn't that meaningful. I would say I'd prefer if I could be, be in PEA to have a rate of 60 as opposed to a rate of 15. Yep, that's just, just me. But let's let's talk a little bit of more in detail about this study and what they were trying to do. So this was a group of 208 non-trauma out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients presenting with PEA. This was a Canadian study in Ontario. It was retrospective and observational as well, looking at the cohort who experienced out-of-hospital cardiac arrest that were in PEA upon initial assessment. They looked for the time period from January of 2018 through December of 2019, and their primary outcome was ROSC, related to the change in end-tidal CO2. So they talked about delta end-tidal CO2 throughout this paper, and the delta they were looking at was the end-tidal one-minute post-airway, so one minute after the airway definitively was placed, to the end-tidal one-minute pre-ROSC or pre-termination, and they excluded DNRs, traumas, no airways, and missing end-tidal patients. So they wanted to see if that end-tidal changes from airway placement to return of spontaneous circulation or termination of resuscitation. How drastic was that change? How drastic was that change, and how drastic did that change impact ROSC rate? And so they had a little bit older group of patients than study one. Their patients were on average, about 75 years old, 60% were male, and they also used multivariable modeling to adjust for age, sex, witnessed or not witnessed, bystander percentage of CPR, EMS times, and initial rhythm. And the primary outcome was ROSC, and this was achieved in 32% of the PEA patients in this study. The median time to first entitle CO2, and we'll come back to this in a second, was 24 minutes, which I've got some questions there. Yeah, that seems a little bit long. Half were intubated, half were supraglottic airways. There was more epi in the non-surviving group, which 
we can discuss that one as well. But when you get down to what they were looking for and the question they were asking, there was a positive linear association between larger delta entitled CO2 for every 10 millimeters of change. And this is exactly what they expected with their hypothesis. In other words, if your entitle started at 20 and increased to 40, you had a much greater chance for ROSC. And this is what we know. So getting the study details aside, the increase in entitle of 20 millimeters of mercury or greater was 95% specific in this study for future ROSC. And I believe this is what we all know and look for when we're resuscitating patients. In other words, if you don't feel a pulse, but you see electrical activity on the monitor and your entitle goes from 15 to 35, what would your consideration be? I would think the fact that we were making that much more entitle means there's a degree of perfusion there. It has to be present. Yeah. There's nowhere else that that's coming from. And this is excluding the patient who obviously just received sodium bicarb. Because we probably shouldn't be receiving sodium bicarb at 15, 20 minutes into the resuscitation. And it causes a false jump in entitle. Now, if we think there's a sodium channel blocker ingestion on board, That's or we've story. got a, an eaten stage renal disease patient, that should be given way up front. Super quick. And not 10, 15, 20 minutes in. And when they looked at the change in increase of entitle CO2 as compared to single entitle values, and this really is the main point I want to get across to the MCHD listeners out there, the delta increase is a much stronger predictor of ROSC than the starting point or the middle point or the ending point. Right. It's all about that change. delta change. So in other words, if their entitle is 40 at minute zero and it's 40 at minute 20 and it's 40 at minute 30, then that should not necessarily concern you for missing a pseudo PEA as much as if their entitle started at 10 and at minute 15 was 20 and at minute 25 was 35, then you've got a delta there. You've got a delta greater than 20. So that's very specific for ROSC. And that can really guide your, your treatment decisions and your decisions on termination versus transport. All of the above. So the questions I would ask from this study is why so long to first end title? I would believe that our time to first end title and our cardiac arrest here, having an IGEL in place within that first, you know, three to five minutes would lead us to have an end title quite a bit quicker than 24 minutes. So I don't I don't really know how to handle that other than to say, hmm, that may be a spot where there's a difference between what we're used to. Sure. What would, would you say ours is pretty pretty on the regular? We, we've really pushed the idea that the gold standard in airway management, and this is in tube confirmation, and this is not a, a revelation that's used across across the world, but it's end title. End title is what lets you know your tube is good. Whether that's an endotracheal tube. Or an SGA. Or an SGA. And so we've really pushed quick confirmation with that method in specific. So I don't know if this invalidates the findings. It just would lead to some questions as far as how specifically and strictly you can make the comparison. It'd be interesting to know if they're if their providers that are placing the SGAs have entitle capabilities or did they have to wait for a supervisor or an ALS unit? Something like that's probably where we are. All good questions. And remember for the MCHD listeners, two epi max in our cardiac arrest protocols. Yep. We believe that we want to focus on neuro-intact survivors and not just ROSC, and we can go back to you know paramedic and the findings there, but that's another topic for another day. So what do we do with this with these results? Delta in title should be, for the most part, in my mind, considered 
ROSC, if we have a PEA patient that has that delta, especially a delta greater than 20. So by delta, I mean change. And the change we're looking for is an increase here in case, sure. in case that wasn't clear before. If you have a patient that has an end title of 40 to start and 20 in 10 or 15 minutes, that's a patient that's not perfusing. And that's a definite predictor for worsened outcomes. We're talking right. about the delta increase. I would almost say we should assume those yeah, I think it really calls for you to be extremely thoughtful about your, your treatment options and where you go from there. That's a patient, dude. That's a change in patient condition, which always should should trigger you to step back and reassess and reevaluate where you are. And get that end title as soon as possible. As soon as we can see that value, that's the quicker we can evaluate for change and watch for that delta increase. You know, we want to utilize our ultrasound. We want to utilize EpiDrip and we want to utilize our transport decisions to reflect being very, very mindful of these changes and decide A, B, or C which direction we take. So there are a couple new hot off the press resuscitation papers from this year. We'll link the hyperlinks in the show notes so you can take a look at these if you would like. We don't want to bomb you with the you know journal club details here. We really think that the big picture points are concentrate on the things that matter in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. We know that compressions and early defibrillation and minimizing pauses and proper rate and proper depth been shown over and over and over to improve outcomes and that getting overly hyper-focused on the airway is not going to help anyone. And in fact, if we're delaying other important chores for the airway, just like the initial study showed, we're going to have worsened neurointact outcomes. And I believe that would come as a shock to no one. Yeah. Second half of the discussion, watch our end title, value our end title. We talk about the shark fin pattern and obstructive lung disease, low end title values in metabolic acidosis patients. This is just another spot where we can use end title to our advantage, especially when trying to assess whether or not we have true PEA or pseudo PEA. If we have a jump in end title, especially a jump greater than 20, that's probably a pseudo PEA patient that needs an epi drip, that needs ultrasound if available and our transport decisions should reflect that. Along with aggressive fluid resuscitation? As well, absolutely. Anything else you want to add, Brad? I think that's it for me. All right, everyone, we won't keep you any longer this afternoon. Thanks for joining us. As always, if you have questions or concerns, please email us at podcast at mchd-tx.org. As always, leave us a like or a review wherever you listen to your podcast. We love five-star reviews. They make us feel good in our heart about all that we're doing here. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to everyone again soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.